So those of you who were with us last week, um, we were in Genesis chapter 19. We talked about Lot uh, and Sodom and Gomorrah, and we focused on the progression of Lot's compromise, how he first set his eyes toward Sodom. It looked like a great place to live, right? Then he built his tent, setting it toward Sodom. Next thing we know, we, we see Lot living in Sodom, in compromise, and we see some of the decisions that he makes through that, almost giving up his daughters to the people of Sodom. And we focused on this progression of compromise. Now, in this next chapter, in Genesis chapter 20, we're going to shift the story back to Abraham. Now we're going to see Abraham, the father of faith, make a mistake, a mistake that he had made once before. Nevertheless, we're going to see God have favor on Abraham's life despite his flaws. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, God's favor despite our flaws. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 20, verse 1 says, and Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kaddish and Shur and stayed in Gerar. So after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's like, I'm getting out of here. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on here. I want no part in this place. So Abraham travels south to the southernmost part of Canaan to this place, uh, Gerar, which was actually a Philistine city. But I want to focus on one key uh, point here. Abraham journeyed. He continued to journey, right? If the father of faith was on a continual journey in his faith, then that might mean that our faith is to look like a journey as well. See, Abraham, he was on the move constantly. He had an adventure, so much so that we read about him in the text. And Abraham did a lot of crazy things. There were ups, there, was da- there were downs. There were all these different things that Abraham encountered along this journey of faith. And we're all on a journey of faith as well. And there are ups and downs. And there's times when we fall short and there's times where we're on point. But nevertheless, it's a journey and we're called to embrace this journey, which brings me to the first point, which is exactly that. Embrace the journey of faith. Embrace the journey of faith. Despite difficulty, despite hardship, despite whatever comes in our way, we see Abraham, though he's flawed, he still embraces this journey and he keeps moving forward. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. If you flip with me there, We see this call of Abraham summarized by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. See, God had called Abraham on this journey. 
He called him on this journey of faith and he didn't know exactly where he was gonna end up. He knew he was going to Canaan and we see him bounce around in different areas there, but he embraced this journey of faith. He didn't have it all planned out, but God called him and he went. God has called us on a journey of faith and we are called to embrace that journey of faith. Do you look at your faith as a journey? Do you look at your faith as a journey? Is it exciting? Is it adventurous? Yeah, there's ups and downs and it's not always easy. Jesus promises that it's not gonna be easy, but is it enjoyable or is it boring? Is it like, yeah, I go to church on Sundays. Sometimes I make it on Wednesdays and it's like, you know, it's just, you know, part of the thing that I do. Or is this, you see your life as a journey of faith. God's calling you on an adventure. He doesn't want you to have a complacent, boring journey. No, he wants you to embrace the journey. He wants you to be excited about the journey. Journeys are supposed to be fun. Yeah, they take time. Yeah, they take effort. They take energy. Sometimes they're hard. Oftentimes they're uncomfortable. Now, in my journey of faith with the Lord, I've had these little journeys as well. And sometimes those journeys often have been in third world countries, whether it be Liberia or Belize or Guatemala or Liberia. Um, Liberia, as I said, it, <laughs> say that one first. Um, Liberia was quite the journey of faith. And it was probably the most difficult mission trip I've ever gone on in my life. We were literally, uh, you've heard me talk a little bit about it before, but we were hiking through the bush uh, for hours and hours and hours, literally uh, sleeping in um, clay huts, uh, eating rats, literally. We talked about this before. It was a journey. It was definitely a journey. It was adventurous. It wasn't always pleasurable, but I walked away with so many valuable lessons that I can carry through the rest of my life and talk about those things, and I'll talk about them sometimes with you guys, and inspire others for, their, for them to, to embrace their own journey of faith. See, when we embrace our journey of faith, you know what happens? We gather these stories, these crazy things that God does, and we can go back and talk to our friends, talk to our family, talk to the people in our community and say, look what God did in my journey of faith. But it takes that step in getting out of your comfort zone. But God has called you on an adventure, on a journey, not a boring faith. This is what God wants from us. Along this journey, like we said, there's ups and downs. There are mishaps and shortcomings, and we're going to see that in the next verse. If you look at Genesis chapter 20, verse 2, Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So Abraham says once again, This is my sister. Yes, she's his half-sister, but she's also his wife. This is a half-truth. Half-truths are still lies. He's lying right now, and he's done this before. If you remember back in the beginning when God called Abraham out to this place, in Genesis chapter 12, he found himself in Egypt, and he did the same thing with Pharaoh. And basically, we'll see later in this text, but what he did in Genesis 12 is he, he told Sarah that wherever we go, if we encounter an authority or a king, just tell him you're my sister, 
because I don't want them to basically kill me and take you because you're my wife, because you wasn't trusting the Lord in his promises, which we'll get back to a little bit later in the text. But look at this. Abraham, this is some 20 years after he committed that sin back in Genesis chapter 12, and now he's falling into the same thing again? If the father of the faith can fall into the same sins over and over again, then we can too. See, the old man, the old man in all of us, he has this tendency to resurrect himself. He has this tendency to come back out and try to influence us, the flesh, to do the same things over and over and over again. The same sin struggle 20 plus years later and he's still lying. Come on, Abraham. We can look at it like that, but we can also recognize that happens in our lives as well. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter four, if you'll flip with me there, to put off the old man. Ephesians chapter four, verse 22. Picking it up in verse 22, it says that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. It's so uh, interesting. He talks about anger later, but he pinpoints this lying thing, put off the old man, put off the lying, put off the deceit. And that's exactly what we see Abraham doing here, his old man. He's abiding in the old man. It's leading him to deceive his neighbor, Abimelech. He is lying to him picking it back up in Genesis chapter 20, verse 3. But God, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. I love this. Despite Abraham's flaws, God intervenes, but God. Abraham lies, but God still protects Sarah, which brings me to my second point. God is greater than our flaws. God is greater than our flaws. God's mercy, God's grace is greater than our flaws. His mercy and grace in our shortcomings is nothing short of miraculous. And we can all identify with this. If you flip with me, to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, picking it up in verse 1, says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the Air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, 
who is rich in mercy because his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I love that you were dead in your sins. You were dead in your trespasses. You were helpless and hopeless and you needed a savior. And, but God, but God intervened and he bestowed grace, unmerited, unearned favor on us that we could be restored. Now, Abraham, he's a friend of God. He's the father of the faith. He has relationship with God and he's still falling back into these things. But God intervenes. So often we can find ourselves in that place. Man, I can't believe I did fill in the blank, but God. Man, I can't believe he, but God. I can't believe she, but God. His grace is so much greater than our shortcomings, than our flaws, than our mishaps. His grace is greater than our sins. Unmerited, unearned favor from God. That's grace. It's what we don't deserve. And that's exactly what we see Abraham did at the moment. He just lied and now God intervenes. God's grace despite his sin in the midst of his sin. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 20 verse 4. And Abimelech had not come near her and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Abimelech's like, what's the deal? Lord, I didn't touch her. Will you slay a righteous nation also? You're going to kill me, said God in the verse before. Indeed, indeed you are dead. And he says, you're going to slay a righteous nation? We see Abimelech refers to him. This word Lord is Adonai. So he recognizes that Lord visiting him in this dream. This is God. He recognizes him as God. Will God slay a righteous nation? Well, it's interesting. The question was posed before in the last chapter. Um, well, actually chapter 18, but discovered in chapter 19. Will God judge the righteous with the wicked? And he has this dialogue with Abraham, right? If there's 50, if there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 10 righteous, will you still judge Sodom and Gomorrah? And God says, no, I won't judge Sodom and Gomorrah, proving that God won't judge the righteous with the wicked. So if God's not going to judge the righteous, if he's not going to slay the righteous, then he's not going to slay a righteous nation. But what nation is a righteous nation? I don't think it really exists, right? But we do see evidence in scripture that when you have a righteous leader put in power, put in the position of authority, that God typically often blesses that nation. Righteous leaders lead to righteous nations even when there's sin going on within the nation. We see it with King David. If you read through 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, even Judges, oftentimes when we see this righteous leader put in power despite the sins that are going on in the nation, God protects the nation because of the righteous leader, and that's what's going to happen here because Abimelech, he's not sinning. He's not sinning intentionally, and we'll get to that in just a moment. He's only, he hasn't even slept with Sarah, but we'll understand this a little better as we go on. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 20, verse 5. Did he not say to me, she is my sister, 
He's pleading his case. And this is all in a dream, by the way. Remember? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. Look at this. He says, Abraham told me that she is my sister and she even said, he is my brother. Abraham led Sarah in sin. How do you lead your wives? For those of you that are married, we see Sarah attempting to submit to Abraham. She refers to him as Lord in chapters back because she has a heart to please God. In her efforts to please God, she submits to Abraham, but what is she submitting to? She's submitting to Abraham's command to sin. Abraham told her to do this. See, our wives will often follow our example for better or for worse. If you're leading your wives in lies, then they're probably going to lie. If you're leading your wives in compromise, then they're probably going to fall in compromise, just like we saw back in the last chapter with Lot and his wife, right? If we're leading our wives in integrity and in truth, they'll likely follow. Not always, but they might. But we have a responsibility as men to lead our wives in the truth, to lead our family in the truth. We have a responsibility as men in general, whether you're married or not, to lead with integrity, to lead in God's way and God's truth. And that's what we see here with Abimelech. He says, in the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. This is the first time integrity is used in the Bible. But he says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. He wasn't intentionally sinning. He didn't desire to sin against God. He had a heart to keep integrity and do what was right. And look what God says in verse six. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God knew, God knew that Abimelech was operating in the integrity of his heart. God knows our heart behind our actions. He knows what's in our heart. He knows the motivations behind our heart. We see this in Mark chapter two, uh, when Jesus, uh, before he heals the paralytic man, it says he perceived what was in the Pharisees' hearts. And he says, why do you reason in your hearts like this? They hadn't even said anything. They didn't say one word. Why do you reason in your hearts like this? He knew exactly what was in their hearts. He knows exactly what's in our hearts. Before we say anything, he knows the motivations behind our actions. He knows if they're pure or if they're impure. And we gotta recognize that because sometimes externally we'll act and it'll appear spiritual. It'll appear righteous. It'll appear like we have the right heart. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're doing things for false motivations. Sometimes we're doing things for what we can gain or we want people to look at us a certain way. And that's what the Pharisees were doing day and night. They appeared spiritual on the outside, whitewashed tombs, but they were dead on the inside. 
And we ourselves can fall into that. But this is what integrity really is. It's a, it's a heart thing. We can appear spiritual on the outside, but integrity is a matter of the heart. And it's a crucial component to our walk with the Lord. We can appear to have integrity, but integrity is really proven when no one's looking. So we can ask ourselves, what's in our hearts? What's in our hearts will be revealed when no one else is around. What we do in the secret place, that tells us whether we have integrity or not. And it could be something as simple as walking by the property, you see a piece of trash. I saw it, but nobody saw me see it. I'm going to keep walking. And you don't pick up the piece of trash. It could be as simple as that. It's integrity. Do you have integrity? Do you want to do the right thing? It's like, yeah. God's watching me. God knows what's in my heart. I want to do this because I want to please God. I'll pick up the piece of trash. It could be as severe as, what are you looking on your computer? What are you looking at on your computer when no one's looking? See, lust, pornography. We talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. That's very prevalent today, and it's ruining relationships. It's destroying marriages. It's leading to adultery. But if we're establishing integrity, walking in integrity, doing those things that honor the Lord when no one's looking, that's integrity of the heart. See, man looks at the outward appearance, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, but God, he's looking at the heart regardless of what we appear to be perceived by men. God is looking at the motivations of our heart. And look what God does. I already read it, but I'll read it again. In verse 6, For I also withheld you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. See, God intervenes to fulfill his promise. Imagine if Abimelech would have slept with Sarah. And what if he got her pregnant? We'd have a very confusing Bible, right? It's like, wait a minute, which one's the son of promise? Uh, Is it the son from Abimelech, or is it the son from Abraham? Well, Abimelech and Abraham, they sound kind of similar. Uh, I'm confused. What's the deal here? Another religion probably would have been established. This is another potential Ishmael situation, right? Abraham slept with the wrong girl, and now we have Islam. God's like, no, we're not doing this again. I'm going to stop this from happening, okay? We're not going to cause more confusion. Abimelech, I'm not going to allow you I didn't allow you, I intervened, I interfered so that this thing wouldn't happen because the promise hasn't yet been fulfilled. It will be fulfilled next week in Genesis chapter 21. Picking it up in verse seven, it says, now therefore restore the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you that you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So God's saying, um, I'm gonna, I'll kill you and all you are, who are yours, your whole, all your people, your nation, if you don't restore this man's wife back to her. But this is what I want to focus on. This is the first time that we see the word prophet in the Bible. This fascinates me. God calls Abraham a prophet when he's in sin. That's amazing. First time he refers to him as a prophet is when he just lied and he's in sin. See, 
This brings me to the third point. God uses flawed men. God uses flawed men. He says, Abraham's a prophet and he's gonna pray for you. It's like, dude, I don't want this guy praying for him. I can't believe a word he says. God's like, no, this is how it's gonna go down. He's a prophet. He's my prophet and he's going to pray for you. Doesn't seem like this would be the time that God would call or commend Abraham as a prophet, but this is the time while he's in sin. This reveals a lot about God. God will use us despite our shortcomings. We see that throughout the scriptures. See it with Abraham. See it with pretty much everyone God uses. Good examples, David. See it with Peter. We see it with Paul. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I love this about Paul. God can use Paul, God can use any of us. And so often we look at Paul like, dude, he is the most legit apostle, gung-ho, all about the things of the Lord in the book of Acts. And we see it established through the epistles. But look what he says here. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Jesus counted Paul faithful. And then he says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He says, God counted me faithful and I used to persecute Christians. Of all people, I'm the chief sinner. I persecuted God's people. Thinking I was doing God a favor, I was destroying the ministry of Jesus Christ nevertheless. God, but God, he had grace on me and he's using me as a pattern to display his long suffering, his character of long suffering. See, if God can long suffer with me, Paul, the chief sinner, then he can long suffer with you. And if he can have grace on me, then he can have grace on you. He used a flawed, broken man. And if he used Paul, if he uses me, then he can use anyone. But what tends to happen is, despite what God says and calls us a, 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 a whatever, you're a, you're a prophet, you're a leader, you're a teacher, you're a daughter, you're a son, you're a fill in the blank. When we fall into sin and we make mistakes, we have this tendency to condemn ourselves. And we're like, man, I messed up, I slipped up, I lied. God can't use me now. There's no way God can use me. I'm flawed. I messed up. I stumbled. But that's not true. We see it with Abraham. He calls him a prophet before he even, before he even repents. He has grace on him and he's going to use him. We can't allow our failures to lead us to a place of self-condemnation. It's Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. If you want to write it down, it says, Though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up. He gets, that's what defines him. What happens if he doesn't get back up? Maybe he's not a righteous man. But a righteous man, he gets back up when he falls. He can fall seven times. God, 
it will give him the grace to get back up. God does use flawed men. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. Amen. Some of you are new here. Don't even want to begin. I'm a flawed individual. Um, my past is ugly, but we won't get into that now. At the same time, though, recognizing that God uses flawed men, we can't use this as an excuse and say, hey, I'm going to go and do whatever I want because God can use me anyway. Be careful. Remember what happened last chapter with Lot. Lot was declared a righteous man, but he was in compromise. He lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, and look at the devastation that that caused. Of the Ammonites and the Moabites, he literally created corrupt nations. So when we sin, when we invite that sin into our lives, we're inviting a lot of problems. So just because God will use us with our flaws doesn't mean that we should pursue flaws and be like, God will use me anyways. No, because those sins, there's consequences for the sins and the Lord disciplines those he loves and I'd rather not invite the discipline of the Lord if it's not necessary. So we shouldn't, ought not to take advantage of it. So uh, back in Genesis chapter 20, verse eight, it says, so Abimelech rose early in the morning called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing and the men were very much afraid. Abimelech instilled the fear of God in, this, in these men. Why? Because he took the message of God, he took the word of God seriously. And when leaders take the word of God seriously, those around them will take the word of God seriously. It was Abimelech. He takes the word seriously and he instills this fear in the people, the fear of the Lord. Remember the last chapter, Lot. He communicates to his son-in-laws, hey, Sodom and Gomorrah is gonna get destroyed. We should bail. And what did they say? They thought he was joking. Why? Because Lot was in compromise. His lifestyle said, I don't take the word of God seriously. I don't take the way of God seriously. So the people that followed Lot didn't take the word of God seriously, didn't take the direction of the Lord seriously. So if we want, if we desire people in our lives to take the word seriously, we gotta take the word seriously. We see Abimelech here, he takes the message of God seriously and it instills fear in all these people they desire to take the word of God seriously. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 20, verse nine, it says, and Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. It wasn't that the fear of God wasn't in this place. The fear of God wasn't in Abraham. Abraham didn't have the fear of God. The fear of God was obviously in the place. Abimelech had fear of the Lord. He instilled the fear of the Lord in the people, but the fear of the Lord wasn't in, in Abraham, and that's why he lied. That's why he sinned. Abraham, he's a work in progress. He doesn't completely trust the Lord yet. Remember, the promise hasn't been fulfilled. He's been waiting for this thing for 25 years at least at this point. About 25, 26 years, he's been waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. 
And we see the Lord come back time and time again and say this promise is going to be fulfilled, but the promise hasn't been fulfilled. So Abraham, the father of faith, he's still struggling with his faith. He doesn't completely trust the Lord. And this exposes that lack of trust, this statement of Abraham. Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. When we mistrust God, when we don't trust God and take matters into our own hands, that's when we get in trouble. That's what we saw back with Lot when he went to give up his daughters. He wasn't trusting the Lord to deliver him. But the angels, they were going to blind him, the men that came after him. And he was going, God was going to use the angels. He did use the angels to protect Abraham, but he was leaning on his own understanding, much like Abraham here. This is the problem with Abraham. Look at back at verse 11. Because I thought, he thought, Abraham thought wrong. It was his thinking that got him in trouble. When we rely on our own logic and understanding and not the Lord's, that's when we get ourselves in trouble. This is the fourth point. Trust in the Lord, not yourself. Trust the Lord, not yourself. It's Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. We talked about it last time. You guys know the verse. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. That's a tough verse when you really think about it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I'm a logic guy. I love philosophy. I love thinking, critical thinking. God says, no. Not that we can't be critical thinkers, but don't lean on it, okay? You gotta trust me. Don't lean. If it doesn't make sense, it's okay. I'm calling you to walk by faith and not by sight. And this is what he's calling Abraham to do. Again, remember, the promise hasn't been fulfilled. When something is happening in your life that makes you question God's promises, then he's probably trying to produce character in you. If God is putting you through a situation to make you question his promise, then recognize biblically he's trying to produce character in you. That's what he's doing with Abraham. He's in a tough situation. I believe God's hoping that he learned from the last time. But Abraham, eh, the promise hasn't been fulfilled. Now I'm with Abimelech. Hey, I might die and never see the promise. What? No. God's faithful to fulfill his promises. He's testing you right now, and he desires to produce character in you. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 3 to 5. It says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. See, when things don't make sense to us, instead of allowing trial to produce character in us, allowing trial to produce good character in us, will allow trial to produce bad character in us. I don't understand. God, this makes me feel like you're not going to fulfill your promise, so I'm going to take matters into my own hand. That leads to acting out in sin, like we see in Abraham. Now he's lying and manipulating to get out of this situation, when the whole time all he needs to do is trust the Lord. That's not God's heart or intentions through trials. He's not, he doesn't bring us through trials so that we waver in our faith. That's not why he brings trials in our lives. He brings trials in our lives to mature us, to establish us in the faith. 
That's what he says in James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That word perfect in the Greek is the word mature. He brings trials into our lives to mature us, to grow us. But we have to recognize that truth of God and we have to have the proper perspective as we're walking through the trial. See, we can allow trials to shake us or strengthen us. And it all depends on our perspective. If I want to be strengthened through the trial, I got to focus on the word of God. I have to focus on the promises of God. I got to trust in the promises of God that he's going to fulfill them even when it seems impossible. And then I'll be strengthened. They shake me. Trials shake me when I'm trying to accomplish them in my own strength man, God, I don't get this, so I'm going to lie or I'm going to manipulate or I'm going to try to get out of this situation. And that, yeah, you're going to waver in your faith. That's got, not God's intention. He puts you in trials and he says, you're going to have to trust me in this one. You're not going to completely understand this. You're not too lean on your understanding in this. This is a time where you're supposed to trust me. And if we don't trust God in those trials, we will be shaken. If we do trust him in the trials, we will be strengthened. Picking it up in verse 12, says, but indeed, she is truly my sister. She is my, the daughter of my father, not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. I didn't lie. I just didn't tell you the whole truth. That's what Abraham's saying here. Yeah, she's my, she's my sister, but she's also, my, she's also my, my wife. If we tell someone a partial truth and it leads them to believe a lie, it's a lie. Okay? It doesn't matter. It's like, oh, well, I told him partial truth. Hey, Abraham, that's a lie still. Nevertheless, we see that a biblic confronts Abraham and Abraham confesses truth. So we see a little bit of growth in Abraham, okay? He's not lying right now. He's telling that, yeah, okay, she's my wife. I admit it, she's my wife. It took the trial to produce this character in there, in Abraham. And we see this little bit of growth. And that's what God's looking for. And this is the fifth point. A little growth is still growth. A little growth is still growth. Now Abraham's being honest at least. This is a good thing that he's being honest. He's going to accuse God in the next verse, but he's still, he's, he's a little more honest than he was previously. And we could look at this and say, really, Abraham, again, you did this again. You lied again. But we see that God used this trial to grow him a little bit, to grow him in trust to grow him in honesty. God's not always looking for perfection. Yeah, it's his goal to perfect us, but what he's looking for is just a little bit of growth. He just wants us to progress. If he wanted us to be completely perfect, he could make us completely perfect, and he desires us eventually to be completely perfect, but he's completely content with the patient process. And within that patient process of sanctification, he's just looking for a little bit of growth. You lied yesterday. Be honest today. You got angry and lashed out yesterday. Let's be a little more loving today. God's so patient with us. He just wants us to take steps of faith and continue to grow. It's not like you're going to be perfect in a day, but be a little more perfect today than yesterday. We see this little bit of growth in Abraham. In Abraham, his story, it can give us so much encouragement. 
If he's called the father of faith and he's this flawed, then we have hope. Pick it up in verse 13. We're almost done. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place. Wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. So we see Abraham confessing that he told uh, Sarah to lie and to sin, but he blames this thing on God. When God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, God caused me to be in this dangerous situation, to wander in this place I didn't know. God called me on this journey and I was scared and because God did it, now I'm sinning. It's so easy to blame God for stuff. It's so easy to blame other people for our sins, right? We see it throughout the Bible in the very beginning, in Genesis, right? Adam, it was the woman you gave me, God. God, it's your fault and her fault. It's not my fault. Eve, it was the serpent's fault. You created them. We do this. We like to blame God, we like to blame people for our sins. Why do we do that? Because we're trying to justify ourselves. It's really rooted in pride. I would rather, tr- rather justify myself than trust in the justification that comes through Christ. We don't have to justify ourselves. We're already justified in Jesus Christ. Just be open, just be honest, confess, be transparent. When you mess up, say, I messed up. Don't blame other people. When you're blaming other people, it's an indication that you're not trusting in God's justification. You're trying to justify yourself. Verse 14, it says, Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. Then Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then Sarah, then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus, she was rebuked. So we see Abraham through all this, he gets blessed. Really? He lied, but now he's getting blessed. God's using Abimelech to bless Abraham. That's so interesting. That's so fascinating. This is a picture of grace in our lives, even in the midst of sin. It's that favor. It's God's favor in our lives, even in our sin. Why? Because we're sons and daughters of our heavenly father. It's not because of what we do or what we don't do. It's because he loves you. It's because he loves us. It's fascinating. Don't take advantage of it, but we see this as a truth in scripture. Verse 17, so Abraham, Abraham, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. God did use Abraham. He used him to pray and he answered Abraham's prayer and he restored Abimelech and his wife and his female servants because God had closed up their wombs. Now he opens the wombs and he blesses Abimelech through Abraham, this flawed individual. See, God, he can use us despite our past, present, and future sins. We can't allow our mistakes or flaws or shortcomings prevent us from answering the call that God has placed on our life. 
it's easy to get discouraged. And maybe that's one of the reasons God did this for Abraham. Because Abraham knew he didn't deserve it. In fact, before in Genesis chapter 14, the king of Sodom offered him a bunch of stuff. And you know what, uh, what Abraham said? He said, no, I don't want a man to bless me because God has so much favor on me. I only want to be blessed by God. Here he takes the blessing from Abimelech, I believe, because he feels the sense of conviction. He's like, man, dude, this guy knows that I'm not, I'm not walking in righteousness right now. He, I'm just going to take it because I don't want to tell him the same thing I told the other guy. Oh, God has favor on me and he's just going to bless me, though it's true. But we see again here, despite this, God uses Abraham. I believe this is a source of encouragement for Abraham to continue on in his journey of faith because he has a calling. There's a promise to be fulfilled and Abraham has to continue on until this specific promise is fulfilled. If you're in that place and you've um, you slipped up, you've backslidden, you're, you've fallen short, there's sins in your minds and your heart that you're like, man, God, I, I, you can't use me because these things are, are here. Yes, we need to deal with those things. But I want to encourage you, if that's you in this moment, you're like, I know God wants to use me, but he can't. Extend your arm, reach out to the Lord. Grab that hand, that extension of grace. His arm isn't too short. He can pull us any, out of any pit, out of any hole. Though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up because God's grace is powerful and gives him the capability to allow him to stand to fight another day. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives. God, we're, we're flawed, Lord. We're flawed individuals like Abraham. It's easy to read the story and look down upon Abraham and how he, how he faltered, how he wavered. But God, if any of us were waiting for you to fulfill a promise for 25, 26 years, God, we might be in that same boat. We might be even worse Lord, but you declared him righteous because of his relationship with you, because of the faith that he had in you. He is a, a son of yours, God, and we have that opportunity to be sons and daughters of you. You're a good father. Lord, you'll use us despite our shortcomings. God, but I pray that you would give us that heart really like Abimelech here, that heart of integrity, God, that we would purpose to please you, that we would purpose to honor you, that we wouldn't take advantage of you. God, we would take your word seriously and through that, the people around us would take your word seriously. Jesus, we need you desperately. We ask for your favor in our lives despite our flaws. In your precious name we pray, amen.